0: Hey everyone, this is Other Jacob, uh, the producer one. This week's episode is a Perch Pod classic. It was released on the 5th of April, 2021. It's an excellent episode with Phil Kelly, who is a geopolitical great. Jacob and Phil engage in a very freewheeling, fascinating conversation about. Uh, the definitions of classical geopolitics and take a deep dive into the geopolitics of Latin America we decided to pull this episode out of the archives because Jacob has been absolutely slammed this week with family stuff and while we know it's not timely and we would love to get you some new episodes especially given all that's happening in the world family stuff is never timely so hold the ones that you love close um, enjoy your week and we will see you out there as soon as we possibly can.
1: Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Um, I get a lot of questions about people who are interested in international politics or for getting a grounding in geopolitics about what things they should read. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to believe it now, but I've been doing this for over 10 years and I've trained a fair number of fellow geopolitical analysts in my life. Um, and when I do, I usually assign five books. Um, I, I always assign something from a kinder, usually the geographical pivot of history, but anything, just pick up some random kinder, anything will do. Um, Politics Among Nations, which is Hans Morgenthau, Saul Bernard Cohen's Geopolitics of the World System, Uh, The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis, not not really geopolitics, but I think relates to the way that you think about things by Richard Hoyer, and then Classical Geopolitics by our podcast guest, Phil Kelly. Uh, Phil Kelly is a professor at Emporia State University. He's written a number of books and journal articles about geopolitics over a career that spans multiple decades. Uh, and I was honestly tickled that he agreed to come on the podcast and talk to us a little bit about geopolitics, and in particular, um, his definition of classical geopolitics and the geopolitics of Latin America. Um, this conversation might get a little wonkier than some of our previous podcasts just because you've got two geopolitics nerds who have found each other in a pandemic and got a chance to talk at least uh, over Zoom and over Zencastr, which is how we how we record this this podcast. But I still thought it was Uh, Hugely valuable, and hope you all enjoy it. Um, Listen, before we get started, before we get into some of the stuff we talked about, um, I like to personalize geopolitics a little bit because it can be very abstract and very macro perspective oriented. So, um, could you just tell our listeners sort of how you came across geopolitics and why it why it interested you in the first place? It's kind of a niche subject.
2: It came back basically later in my career. Um, I had moved to Kansas in 1980. But um, I had read before that time an article by Jack Child of American University uh, in the Latin American Research Review on South American geopolitics. That stimulated an interest. I started reading, and I've always tried to read as much as I could. And in the middle 1980s, I published a couple articles on Miramatus of Brazil and Shatterbelts. And in 10 years, uh, I've met Jack at various conferences since then. And he and I agreed to do an edited book uh, on uh, South American geopolitics. I think we had seven or eight Latin American writers. We had six North American writers, one Brit. And that was published in 1979, uh,
1: 1989. It's a a good time to be publishing things on geopolitics and auspicious.
2: I haven't stopped since.
1: If I might ask me, I'm familiar with your work on geopolitics, what were you working on or, or focusing on before you, you got into it?
2: A, a little bit of, uh, uh, I was talking, I was dealing with the uh, United States ambassadors, their backgrounds, especially uh, the regional placements. I did a um, statistical study on that where I located the more experienced U.S. ambassadors going to the larger countries, which is, of course, common sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is not common. Well, I
2: say, too, before that, uh, from my PhD dissertation, I took a part of it on, on um, Latin American voting in the General Assembly of the United Nations, did a Gutman scale, uh, which is sort of a, a rank order scale, and plugged in regression analysis, found that uh, distance from the United States affected Latin American voting in the United Nations. At the time, I didn't realize that was geopolitical, so I was doing geopolitical before 1979 and Jack Child. I just didn't realize it, <laughs> so that uh, disease must have been somehow within my blood.
1: <laughs> it, it does have that uh, attribute to it. Well, why don't we dive straight in because uh, Classical Geopolitics was the first book of yours that I read, and I think it does a really great job of unpacking what geopolitics is. Uh, i I particularly love the the passage where you talk about look it's not realism everybody tries to make it about realpolitik, mm, yes. and it's not it's not you know the wall street journal every other day there's a new geopolitical change in the market and some catastrophe it's not that it's really something else so h- how do you define classical geopolitics well it's it's very
2: uh, important to define it because i think that's one of the problems it as you probably know classical geopolitics does not get a good press in the united states <laughs> and that's up to the present i just uh, published an article where I rescued uh, uh, ge- geopolitics from some of the negative um, uh, articles that are just coming out and have come out uh, for the last half century. I want to talk about both definitions and theory mm-hmm. and wanted to give some uh, uh, preliminary remarks. Classical geopolitics would be traditional geopolitics. Uh, it follows a couple routes. Uh, the geostrategic would be English. The organic would be German. Why I point that out is that the organic would be more South America, but uh, pretty much Halford-McKender, uh, Nicholas Speakman. And uh, there is a contrasting geopolitical um, approach. I'll just mention it once. We could certainly go into it later, but I'll mention it just once. That would be the critical geopolitics, which stems from political geography, mainly European, Canadian, United States. And this is where geopolitics is seen as a negative. It's a tool of exploitation, um, postmodern radical approach. Um, I don't subscribe to that, although I've written quite a bit about it. So I'll just sort of leave that if you want to come back to that. sure. Uh, I'm an academic theorist. I have dealt with theory and the application of theory, and that's my contribution to classical. Um, I think both. Uh, I think theory is essential both to understanding international relations, but particularly to understanding classical geopolitics. Uh, in my uh, recent book with Stanford, I located over sixty geopolitical theories. <laughs> uh, so very important. A theory is probability. If X happens, there is some likelihood, some probability that uh, Y will happen because of X. Now, in some cases, you can plug that into statistics. In most cases, you can't. So this is a bit rough, but I don't see any way around it. But again, uh, theory is a probability. If something happens, uh, it probably links back to an earlier stimulation. Uh, Let me just give another definition, too. I use the word model. And model, to me, is a collection of theories that fit a particular definition. Now, I don't see geopolitical theories. I see theories that fit a geopolitical definition. And if they do, they enter into that basket, which we would call a geopolitical model. And then um, one... Brief point beyond that is that my mission in geopolitics is to clarify theories and then to try to appropriately ab- attach them to international understanding, to um, uh, to uh, uh, attach them to that, uh, so apply them to that. So that would be my introductory points. The definition of, of classical geopolitics is essential to this, uh, this discussion because I think that's one of the problems with geopolitics. It is either never defined or it's wrongly defined. Uh, some of that comes from uh, perhaps the fascist uh, heritage, uh, uh, Haushofer's uh, World War II uh, 1930s uh, institute in Germany, Uh, I think also that uh, you have the idea of power politics that is attached, a negative that's attached to geopolitics also, that to me, I I think this is correct, I'm still working on it, but power politics would be more or less large countries in uh, aggressive diplomacy. You wouldn't have Paraguay as in power politics Obviously, the relationship between Russia and the United States would be power politics. To me, I don't have a problem with that, but I just don't attach it to uh, either geopolitics or the realist model. Uh, It's just a particular trait of international politics. So I have tried to be very careful on my definition, okay? And I'm going to do it in three levels, and I think it'll be clear when I say this, that the simpler level... Is that um, geography, geography affects foreign affairs? Now that's a pretty that's a pretty simple, uh, uh, not complex. You could go a higher level and say, and this is one I often use: geopolitics is the study of locations and positions of states, regions, and resources affecting foreign affairs. So I've added location and position of countries, regions, and resources. And then if you want to get more lengthy, then to that, both of those, you can add such features as distance, climate change, environmental, migration, demography, um, development, places of leverage, sea power. You can go on with a lot of those concepts that you could attach to that definition itself. But again, there is the geographical fixture to geopolitics. It's a spatial... Now, one point further on this, what is the contribution of classical geopolitics? What does it give us? Well, I look at two things. One is that it gives us a geographical map, a sandbox, a structure, a configuration, of international relations. If you look at, say, the ancient uh, uh, Peloponnesian War, you can look at that war as a platform, and then secondly, you look at all of the theories that would uh, activate that platform. Mm -hmm. And so again, you've got a platform, a spatial platform, for sort of looking at a region or a continent or intercontinental relationships, and then you have concepts and theories that play on that platform. And then I I just published a a short article and I wanted to give a little more on what I look at on classical geopolitics and the theories. And so I'm just going to read a a paragraph of that. Uh, The classical is neutral to values and to individuals. Its theories, timeless, logical, sometimes classic, uh, cyclical and state-centered. The, the actors are states, not individuals. You don't hear individuals. The states are the performers. Its generalizations apply universally. They would go to Paraguay, they would go to Russia. They do not focus on power, conflict, and war, but on space. And they can conform to the dynamics of technolo- technological change. So again, neutral, values, and neutral to individuals. The theories are timeless, logical, sometimes cyclical, state-centered. They're universally applied. Uh, They're not focused on power, conflict, and war, but on space, and they can conform to change. In other words, I published a chapter in a book 10 years ago where I took the Peloponnesian War many, many years ago, the platform had a variety of theories to it, shatter belts, checkerboards, na- uh, sea power, land power, distance, etc., etc. I could take those same platforms, apply them to contemporary South America using the same theories, and it was interesting that I could come out with different patterns. The Peloponnesian War, the geopolitics of the Peloponnesian War were strife, were were stressful. They were conflictual. In many ways, they sort of ended classical uh, Athenian uh, Greek culture. Mm -hmm. On the other side, for South America, those same concepts and theories lent themselves to peace and stability. In other words, I could take the same platforms, the same theories over time, and get different patterns or maybe the similar patterns. Now, just one other point here that geopolitics does not emit a lot of policies. Policies are more long-term. That again, you don't have statesmen issuing geopolitical policies. That we have geopolitical traditions such as the Monroe Doctrine or we have these theories but they're really not immediate. They would be more long-term where in the case of the realist model, which I really like, I really like the realist model, that model is focused on the careful uh, utilization of power among countries. And in that, you do get policies that are immediate, um, and uh, they're, they're certainly, they apply to the stability of the international system. So geopolitical is more long term, and realism would be more immediate on that. Um, I have to say that in the research, geopolitical offers so many expressions for research. Um, I have to add a little anecdote. I was to give a, a talk in Kentucky, and uh, I, I, tornadoes followed the airplane into the airport. and by the time I got up to Western Kentucky State, uh, they had canceled the uh, convention. They had canceled classes. I sort of snuck in a library, didn't have much to do, came up with another theory. Uh, Paraguay is a lintel state, sort of a lintel above uh, stabilizing relations between Brazil and Argentina. So that there's a, a great deal of ripeness, a great deal of expansion with classical geopolitics. I'm by no means done with my research on classical geopolitics. So that's my that's my point on definitions and theories
1: yeah there there's a lot to unpack there and I want to ask you a few questions the, the first one I want to ask is why do you think geopolitics gets so much bad press is, is it because no, I, of the Nazi appropriation of it is you it know, that I'm simple
2: not certain, I'm not certain of that Jacob I I I, 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 I simply don't know um, it um, it just it this is one of those areas where I have uh, tried to clarify theories. I've cl- tried to clarify the um, definition. I've tried, that's my way of bringing geopolitics as a model to international relations theory. Um, I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, mm-hmm. This plagues me, but I don't know why power politics necessarily equates with geopolitics.
1: Yeah. And I wonder you, also-
2: the ideas on that?
1: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, some of it has to be the Nazi appropriation, I would think. But I also, at least in my own personal work, um, I've always struggled, and you sort of alluded to this when you said that geopolitics is neutral to values and individuals. I certainly agree with values. It's harder when you get to individuals because um, I feel like if, if there's classical geopolitics, there's also a school of vulgar geopolitics out there that starts to veer on determinism and starts mm-hmm. to say that you know, because there's a mountain here and there's a river here and there's this resource here, Therefore, all of these things are going to happen this particular way, and they discard the probability bit and then use the arguments in order to make these deterministic arguments. And actually, a lot of my work has been to break that apart, that there is no, just because you have the space and the position perfectly understood doesn't mean that all these second order things like power and war and conflict are necessarily predetermined. That's one of my guesses, but I, how do you negotiate that line between determinism and geopolitics? Well, I,
2: have, I have been accused of being a determinist, and perhaps there's something to that. Obviously, I am emphasizing geopolitics when I look at international relations, and I'm emphasizing that platform, that spatial platform, and the effect of theories on it. So uh, I, I, uh, I think that geography doesn't necessarily determine outcomes— but it certainly influences them. I think the, uh, you know, you, that there's no, there's no hard and fast rule of connection and determining uh, geography affecting international behavior, but um, all of the theories in the probability sense lend them to that. that if, uh, I think that the heartland theory, for example, we'll come back to that later, but the heartland theory I think does hold water. And uh, a theory, again, gives you more depth in understanding international relations. And so obviously, you're going you're to be accused of determinism because you are, you're relying so heavily on theory as far as your approach to understanding international relations.
1: It's, um, it's, funny, it's funny you mentioned the heartland theory, because in some way, I mean, it's, it's you know, everybody has to read Mackinder's heartland theory when you're starting geopolitics. But in some ways, it's my least favorite of his work, because it's the one where his policy desires start to infect it a little bit. Because I think that he's arguing from that geostrategic perspective, not just that, um, you know, that the heartland is the pivot of the world island, but also that Britain should be involved in making sure that nobody else controls that. There's that sort of undertone yeah. to it, and it's hard to extricate them even within, you know, successive yeah. sentences in that piece. Do do you feel that way at all? Yes,
2: Jacob. I'm I'm very much. Uh, I I didn't put a lot of store on Mackinder or the Heartland, uh, because again, it doesn't work <laughs> because Mackinder put it in Eurasia, and uh, the Eurasian Heartland would be basically Russia or the Soviet Union. And uh, it, uh, the Soviet Union never, never made it to effective ocean shores. Uh, they were pretty much encircled. And, um, but then I did a recent article that was dealing with the North American heartland. Hmm. And so I took McKinder's theory. Now, again, it would, be a, it would be an isolated core area of a continent. And within that core area, you have resources, and you have some measure of unity, which I think probably Russia did, but Russia never made it to the oceans. And of course, the United States easily made it to the oceans and didn't only make it to the oceans, but we are the global sea power of, the, of, of international relations. So the United States not only made it to the oceans, but we made it over the entire globe so that we have a push-pull factor, we have a push factor from the heartland, we have a pull factor onto Eurasia, and Eurasia would be the dominant continent, but the United States, because of its wealth and its centrality and its protection, is the global heartland. And so, as we know, that United States security is using its navy and its army, uh, offshore balancing, uh, forward presence, maintaining a, a favorable balance of power on Eurasia for American security. Mm-hmm. And so I do put more stress on Mackinder because I, I have changed McKinder's placement. I have refined his theory, for one thing. I have changed his placement. And to me, it makes a lot more sense to say that the United States is the global uh, heartland And my bias, you may not accept that, but my bias is that of all of the areas, all of the continents of the globe, the United States occupies the wealthiest, most powerful place on Earth. Now, the Eurasia may be larger, maybe have more power, but it's divided, and the Mm -hmm. United States is able to play off that division.
1: Would it be fair to say that if someone united Eurasia, that... You would have to change your mind, or is yes, that an I would impossibility? Change
2: my mind, Or if the United States uh, succumbed and no longer was united, breaking into a variety of countries, then yes, the international perspective would radically change. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think that's a great segue though, into maybe talking a little bit about Latin America specifically, because one of the reasons I appreciate your work so much is that so much of of what geopolitics is out there is all focused on Eurasia. And I think it, it really doesn't look close enough at the periphery and your work on Latin America is some of my favorite work that does that. And I say it's a good segue because um, you know, you talk about the American heartland. The Rio de la Plata seems to me like it could be a heartland if, if some of the countries in the region wanted to get their act together. So t- tell me a little bit about how you approach um, bringing some of these geopolitical theories and your model to, yeah, uh, to Latin America.
2: I, I say Latin American geopolitics, South American geopolitics, mm-hmm. but but I think basically, South American geopolitics is is much more in existence. I, I haven't found any authors in Middle America. That would be a prominent geopolitical uh, thinking. Hmm. Um, so, when I say Latin American geopolitics, in some cases I switch to South American geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me let me start and uh, give the three Americas, and then uh, stretch uh, to other topics from that, because hmm. I think this is a good starting point for looking at South American. Latin American, North American geopolitics. I look at three different Americas in a geopolitical focus. North America, its geopolitics points east and west strategically, intercontinentally toward Eurasia. North America uh, is the prime global heartland in the, the kinder, uh, uh definitions. Uh, it is uh, united. It, it, it's, it's a core continental area, of course, uh, very protected, doesn't, uh, it doesn't have many immediate threats from Eurasia. It's united, it's resource-rich, and as I said before, it extends easily into the naval area. Um, uh, secondly, then, you have Middle America, which to me would be the Caribbean and Central America, also strategic but in a negative sense. It is not a heartland, obviously. It's very weak, very divided, very dependent on the United States. It is susceptible to shatter belts. In other words, a shatter belt would be like the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. It's two levels of conflict uh, within a region or a country. And you have international strategic uh, players from outside coming into that conflict. And so you've got two levels of conflict in a shatter belt. Uh, one would be the local, one would be the strategic, and the real danger of a shatterbelt is escalation of conflict. Mm-hmm. So, that the Cuban Missile Crisis was a shatterbelt. I think a good example today would be Ukraine or Yemen, would be shatterbelts. Uh, so, that again, North America's strategic Eurasian, Middle America is Monroe Doctrine, where this would be a weak area uh, susceptible to Eurasian penetration the United States would have an interest when there is a threat coming from the South. But if you look to the South American geopolitics, very, very different. No strategic uh, feature to South American. In other words, it is continental. It has very little ties with other continents. You never hear Mackinder, Speakman. Uh, they a little bit in the Brazilian area. But it's um, the... Um I call it an independent area, a marginal area, an isolated continent in geopolitical terms. Its geopolitical thrust is within the continent. And uh, again, the continent is not united, is divided into 13 countries, 10 main countries. Um, it uh, lacks wealth and resources, with some exceptions, and um, it lacks unity, and I don't know if it will ever be unified. We'll come back to that. Um, I just don't see South America being much of a strategic player. Now, earlier on, General Miramatos, during the 1960s, 1950s, looked upon Brazil as a strategic player. And of course, he was leading Brazilian military forces in World War II in Italy. But, um, uh, it's going to have to be some future time if uh, Latin if uh, South America ever plays some kind of a strategic role. And so um, again, you've got three Americas, and I think it's a good starting off place. North America, Middle America would be strategic in different ways. And then South America would be continental, interior. Uh, we'll come back to that when I give more description. But the geopolitics of, of, of South America would be uh, border stability, development, um, uh, those kinds of areas, integration, uh, security, uh, uh, wariness of Brazil, uh, these kinds of features. So again, uh, that's a way of looking at it. Um, I could go on then to another topic taking from that.
1: Well, could I could I ask just one question though? Yeah. I, I I wonder is there any do you lend any credence to the fact that um you know a lot of these South American countries have become I don't want to say dependent that's the wrong word but their economic relationships with China have deepened considerably yes. and China's need for some of the resources that they do have whether it's lithium or soybeans or whatever else mm-hmm. has also deepened considerably especially especially as China tries to wean off of dependence on the U.S. so. Do you think we're at a little bit of a pivot point where maybe South America could become more strategic because of well, that relationship with China? Or am I putting the cart before Yes, I think, the
2: especially China on the Pacific uh, coast of these Latin American countries has uh, made major uh, uh, economic uh, ties to Peru, uh, to the Panama area. So I would think this would be certainly a concern of the United States as a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, But to me, it would have to be much more serious. There would have to be military bases uh, more than economic development. So this would be a concern, and it certainly is a possible contradiction, but a very weak contradiction to the Monroe Doctrine, but -hmm. certainly a good point. And there's a lot of literature on that at present.
1: Yeah, and and secondly... Is it does Venezuela today fit your definition of a shatter belt, or is it too much? It's it's really just domestically contained, and the U.S. is the only real power there. And to the extent Russia and China are fooling around, it's not.
2: It, it could be. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. That's a good it, point. So uh, Venezuela would not be, to me, a a, um, a clear example of violation of the Monroe Doctrine, but it would be in that area.
1: Yeah, although also to your point, I mean, it, it also faces the Caribbean and is, is as much, it sort of is in that border area between a South American state and a Central American state as well. Yeah,
2: yeah. So uh, let me go to another topic uh, yes. on that same point. Um, if we switch totally to South America, uh, the geopolitical origins come from uh, the Germanic uh, example, the organic example of geopolitics, classical geopolitics. Uh, early military attaches uh, brought in uh, some of the features of that um, I have picked up uh, organic uh, thrust of of uh, classical geopolitics in Argentina certainly in Paraguay um, Chile throughout the South American continent um, it, it, it again it's a it's a uh, organic would be uh, um, developmental features, it would be borders and frontiers, national development, uh, regional and border security, some integration of resources. Um, I think that the organic fits South America nicely as a geopolitical definition, where North America would be uh, geostrategic English. So Mm -hmm. you've got an English in North America, you've got a German in South America, uh, I lived in Paraguay for a time, and interesting that, um, uh, and I'm going to come back to that point later, but I picked up a book in um, uh, a bookstore in Asuncion, uh, Hennig and Kornig. It was a book that had been published in German in Munich, had all kinds of fascist, uh, racist uh, terminology. That had been translated into Spanish and was a textbook in uh Military academies.
1: Huh. That's wild.
2: <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that kind of um, of uh, features. So again, that would be one contrast. But again, I think that the organic does fit South America. The uh, geostrategic does fit uh, North America. So the uh, again, South American geopolitics is isolated. It's on the margins. Its, trait are, its traits are basically internal to the continent, not strategic or linked to other uh, continents. It would be an organic uh, geo, uh, classical geopolitics.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, in some of your writing, um, you know, you've, you've compared, um, interestingly to me, you've, you've compared Brazil and the United States in some ways, that they have more similarities in common than maybe some of the other South American states, in part because Brazil seems to have this It's almost programmed to try and reach West in the same way that the United States was, except, of course, Brazil has never been able to do that. Is that is that a correct reading? And and do you think that Brazil will ever, ever push that way? I mean, is that a fear? of
2: I think there was some suspicion of that. I'll come back on heartlands and other things, too. But uh, certainly there is a wariness of Brazilian expansion to not only the uh, West, but also to the North and even in Antarctica. Uh, I don't know how much that would be. I think it comes up in cycles. Uh, Mm -hmm. But one of the traits of South American geopolitics would be wariness, suspicion of of, uh, Brazilian expansion. And of course, there is the idea, I think Kissinger was promoting this, that uh, Brazil would be a key nation for United States foreign policy. In other words, we would put our emphasis on Brazil and it would uh, uh, carry out our policies for the rest of the continent. Uh, I don't know how viable that is today but uh, certainly Brazil looks upon itself as differently and if anything they would have more of a strategic interest and maybe someday they might um, they might be able to play that role
1: D- does the point, does though. does the bolsonaro government did, what evidence, or, or or the the rise of the Bolsonaro government, does that push in any direction for you? Is that an example of any kind of emerging trend, or is that really just sort of the dustbin of domestic politics I, that gets swept away? I think it's away? probably
2: more domestic politics. Uh, your 1950s, 1960s, into the 1970s, Goldberry, uh, Teresa de Castro, uh, Miramatos, I think we're all pushing this idea that Brazil was ranked the sixth most uh, powerful economic country of the world, and that it should have a um, it should have a role in world politics. I don't think that was ever played out, and I don't hear that so much in Brazilian bol- politics today, geopolitics mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, what I thought I would do then, Jacob, is look at some of the uh, basic theories or concepts. I have eight of them. Uh, I think we could find others, but I thought this might give some indication, too, of, um, of South American geopolitics. Um, the, the the theories that I will give would be a, not only characteristic of South America, but they would be ubiquitous. They would be global. Mm-hmm. But I think they do help characterize uh, South American geopolitics. Um, yeah, great. Not that this is necessarily the most important, but you raised the point of heartlands.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and. Um, you basically you could locate four heartlands that I have, that I have seen, in South America. Uh, one would be the Charcas heartland of Bolivia. It's sort of a triangular. Uh, Lewis Tams writes about this. Um, I use this in some of my research. Uh, it's the idea that uh, you have a triangle of uh, three major cities of Bolivia: Santa Cruz de la Sierra. Would be in the uh, Amazonian jungle area, the oil area. The other two cities would be up in the Andes. But um, what what the idea of the Charcas Triangle is that who dominates uh, Santa uh, Cruz de la Sierra dominates the Charcas heartland, uh, the Charcas Triangle. Who dominates the Charcas uh, Triangle? dominates the middle of South America and eventually the entire continent of Latin America, of South America. The only difference between this, it's pretty mckinderistic, but the idea is that the Charcas is weak and vulnerable to Brazilian uh, intervention. And so that Brazil, uh, paving its uh, highways in that direction toward mountain passes and the Charcas Triangle, could be an avenue to Brazilian domination of the continent. I don't think you can carry it any further than that. Uh, Goldberry uh, of Brazil, a, a very influential general at that time, talked about a welding zone in the Brazilian uh, Central Brazilian Plateau, sort of a military term of a marching area. And I think he interpreted that as a heartland uh, where Brazil would work out from that area through the um, Ecuadorian passes, through the Brazilian passes on into the Pacific. Now, not much happened on that, but that was certainly lending to suspicions of Brazilian aggressiveness, both the Charcas and the, uh, 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 the welding zone. I have also heard, too, that the Itaipu hydroelectric plant on the Paraná River, which is one of the largest hydroelectric power plants of the world. It serves most of Brazil, southern Brazil. Uh, has been uh, seen as a heartland. And the Paraguayans look upon their country as a pivotal area uh, in the southern cone and as a heartland too. Hmm. Uh, they all vaguely follow McKinder's uh, traditional heartland theory. Uh, but again, I don't know how important this is, uh, but at least you do hear the word heartland and the Charkas and the Brazilian heartlands and the other heartlands too. And it does lend some color to South American geopolitics. Another is your buffer states. And of course, there are four buffer states going from the northwest to the southeast, uh, Ecuador, Bolivia, Paraguay, Ecuador, uh, Uruguay. And the interesting thing about the buffer states are that I call this a clash zone or a crush zone, which is sort of a, 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 a shatter belt term too, is that five of the six South American wars were fought within that crush zone of the buffers. Hmm. In all of those wars, the buffers lost territory to the larger countries. But I look upon that that, uh, crush zone or the buffer area still stabilizing South America. In other words, they still buffer the larger countries. And I think that is a major factor in the stabilization of of current uh, South American politics and geopolitics. So the buffer states are very interesting. Thirdly, uh, the checkerboard. And the checkerboard is a leapfrog pattern, geopolitical pattern. My neighbor is my enemy. The neighbor of my in- neighbor is my friend. You had this in the Peloponnesian War. I think we had this in the Vietnam conflict. You can see it in the Middle East. And it certainly is in South America. And I think this is very alive and well today. Brazil, Chile, Colombia versus Argentina, Peru, and Venezuela. You saw this especially in the Falklands-Malvinas War, where uh, Argentina occupied the Falklands-Malvinas Islands against the British. In that war, what in the early 1980s, uh, Brazil was silent. Chile actually aided the Uh, British in their naval uh, area. Uh, Peru was the only South American ally of Argentina. So you do see the the checkerboard uh, uh, formation in South America. I think you, uh, Jacob, referred to this also. A fourth would be Brazilian encirclement, Mm. that despite the checkerboards, there is the Spanish-American weariness of Brazilian expansion. certainly the Charcas and Goldberries uh, welding zone, Um, the roads, uh, the uh, Amazonian roads into the west uh, aimed at the uh, passes of Ecuador, uh, the passes of the Charcas in Bolivia. I think there was some reason to believe, at least in the 1960s, that Brazil, the military governments of Brazil, were looking for passage to the Pacific. Of course, that never happened. Um, A fifth Uh, term would be Shatterbelts. There are no Shatterbelts in uh, South America. The last Shatterbelt was a Cuban Missile Crisis in the Caribbean, but there were some early colonial Shatterbelts in South America at the La Plata mouth and the Amazonian estuaries. Uh, The estuaries of Brazil would be Dutch and English. The estuaries at the La Plata would be Spanish and English. Uh, but you don't have any shatter belts in South America because there is no strategic alignment with the continent. Um, you can look at organic borders. Uh, my take, I think I'm correct on this, is South America, I call, is a zona de paz, a peaceful area. Uh, there simply is no border disputes. There is no tendency for warfare. I think the only exception would be the Marañon uh, River Valley uh, on the Pacific uh, in Peru, you did get an occasional flare-up of the military between Ecuador and um, and Peru. Um, the uh, South American, the entire Latin American area is a nuclear-free zone. Also, there simply are no uh, nuclear weapons in, in Latin America. There is no possibility of even building uh, La- uh, nuclear weapons in Latin America. This was an agreement that uh, uh, with the United States and Latin American countries. To simply um, uh, denuclearize the whole area. I don't think there are major disputes in Middle America either. Hmm. And then just a couple more here Uh, integration. Uh, If you look at the uh, South American Mercosur, the the common market of of the Southern Cone, uh, this is a variety of countries uh, throughout the area. And I think even Israel is a member of uh, Mercosur. Integration is really a a geopolitical uh, attribute. Uh, This is especially Quagliote de Belize in Uruguay, the editor of the Heusur publication. And um, you had a a pretty good spurt of this in the 1990s. I don't think it's done much since then. And then just one other point, the Camino del Sol, the idea that... uh, uh, Latin America, South America just simply doesn't play a role in strategic northern geopolitics, Eurasian, North North uh, North America.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it, those are the eight theories, and you can see the importance of theories in looking at South American geopolitics.
1: If I might ask where, um, you mentioned the three Americas, and I would feel remiss if I didn't ask. Is Mexico North America in, in the division of the no, Americas
2: point. I, I sort of go back and forth on that. A lot of this, I, my mind is not settled on. Um, you like to hook uh, Mexico into North America because of NAFTA. Um, but still, Mexico is, is a Latin American country. So I think that you could say that Mexico may look both ways into South America, uh, Latin America, and into um, uh, into North America. So that's a very good point and, quite frankly, one that I haven't worked out.
1: Yeah, but it seems to me that, well, I, I don't know if it's going to be one of the themes because this particular, you know, AMLO's government in Mexico seems to be a little bit more active in, in South America itself, whether it's backing, well, I, no, I don't want to say backing Maduro, but taking a more neutral stance toward Maduro. They, they slapped the OAS on the wrist over the OAS uh, going yeah. after Morales. I mean, it, it feels like Mexico is trying to break out of whatever box it's been forced in.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also been very active in the Caribbean too, And um, I I would agree that it does want to break out of that uh, fixture that would be the the United States. It's so tied to the United States that I think it wants to relieve itself and be more autonomous from the United States. Uh, I don't know what the future will hold on that.
1: Is it also, I mean, obviously when we're looking at Central America, migration would be a major theme, but do you see any, any migration theme in South America itself, or is I, that I really? That's
2: already happening, uh, that you're getting a lot of immigration from Brazil into the border areas, uh, but also as you're having global warming, I think this would be both Central America, the Caribbean for the north, and then uh, certainly the... Uh, uh, Southern Cone or South America going into Uruguay, going into Chile, going into Argentina, as you have global warming. I think we're going to have a major factor in the Americas for immigration. It's going to be a major theory, a theme for uh, Latin American geopolitics. Um, on the Northern area, this might be more controversial, but I don't think the United States has a choice, but to take a good number of those refugees from Central America, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think we can. I think we can facilitate their settlement in America. Uh, I, I think that will de- that will stabilize the area of the, of the uh, Central America that is uh, certainly changing through climate change, through corrupt governments, through lack of resources, and those people simply have no other way to go but to go north. And uh, we're certainly going to have this in Europe too, and in Asia, where they're going from the middle latitudes into the northern latitudes. But we're going to see immigration as a major factor in Latin American geopolitics. Very good point.
1: That that uh, the point you just made may be controversial to some, but it's not controversial on this podcast. And anybody listening who thinks it's controversial can go stick their heads in a toilet. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but I'm 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 really glad you brought up climate change though too, because I, I do just want to I wanted to ask a question about climate change in the sense that have we ever when we're dealing with geopolitics is there an analogous trend or development like climate change that has has the potential to change so much of these things that are usually, that they usually trend more towards immutable and universal? Have we ever dealt with an analog like this or are we really on unprecedented ground? But
2: but certainly climate and global warming is inherently geopolitical and that uh, it's obviously going to be disruptive. Um, I'm rather pessimistic on this, Jacob. I don't know a good answer to it, but... um, I look at uh, our globe has too many people, we have dwindling resources, we have the middle latitudes throughout the world are heating up, there will be vast stretches of the middle areas of our globe, the latitudes, where uh, people will simply have to leave. Now, when I look at the globe, I look at the North as having land, territory, continents, the South having oceans, waters. Hmm. In other words, if there's going to be migration out of those destitute areas because of global warming, the, the movement is going to go north. And I'm thinking more of Middle East and Europe and Africa. I think you're going to have a I think they're going to go both ways in the Americas. But um, you're going to have massive migrations out of unhealthy areas into healthy areas. And are the healthy areas really going to accept those migrants? In other words, we're going to have a gated community in the future, or we're going to have a very progressive uh, uh, environment in the future. And I'm not sure if the progressive or the walls, um, I I don't know which alternative we're going to have. Mm -hmm. I have my suspicions that we're going to have the North wealthy countries wall themselves off and try to resist the immigration coming in from the South. Mm -hmm. And we're already seeing, of course, in North America, the United States wanting to wall uh, the southern boundary from Mexico. off. I'm very much against those walls. Mm-hmm.
1: Is is there a similar dynamic in South America itself? In the extent there's going to be from Argentina upwards, or is that? Yeah, is I, that I
2: think a... it probably will be. I think there's going to be some resistance to, um, uh, say, for example, Paraguayan uh, immigration into Uruguay and especially into Argentina. There are major areas of Paraguayan settlements in Buenos Aires and in the interior of Argentina
1: um Phil I could talk to you all day we're 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 honing in on 50 minutes so I guess I would throw it at you are are there any parting thoughts you'd like the listeners to have or anything we haven't talked about that you want to touch on before we close Well
2: uh, no I again I think that uh, geopolitics is a very alive area it's a very stimulating area is one that could be very useful and is neglected in international relations and my ambition in geopolitical research is to try to clarify it's theories and their application as a way of legitimizing classical geopolitics as a legitimate, usable, international relations model. And that's well, my ambition.
1: Well, I, th- I think you've, uh, you've made a lot of headway in that ambition and at least know that in me and in some of the analysts I've trained in my life, we're, we're all secret fans of yours and are rooting for you from afar. So I hope that we can uh, have you back on the podcast soon. And thank you so much for, make, uh, for making exactly. the time. Thanks
2: for having me. Thank you, Jacob.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at Cognitive.Investments. That's Cognitive.Investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at Jacob at Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor.